There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 357. And today I'm joined by Justin Hollinsworth of Whitetail Addictions TV to discuss high-risk, high-reward tactics that lead to DIY deer hunting success and much more. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. My guest today is Justin Hollinsworth. He is a serious deer nut from central Ohio, a member of the Whitetail Addictions TV team, and I think this is fair to say, a disciple of the Andre DeQuisto School of Deer Hunting. And Justin, like Andre and a whole bunch of others who've kind of come out of this coaching tree, maybe you could call it, folks like Adam Hayes and Dan Infault and others. Justin is a mobile deer hunter who makes aggressive moves when needed to get in tight on big mature deer. So today I wanted to dig into what makes Justin tick, why he does what he does, how exactly he is having such consistent deer hunting success year after year. And I think this stuff, while in his case is being applied to trying to kill a big old buck, it could also help you if you're trying to kill any buck or if you're trying to kill your first two-year-old buck or whatever it is your goal is, these things can help you. And let me tell you, this is a good one. Justin's got a great perspective and I think I think he just effectively is able to share his thought process from past hunts in a very helpful way. But probably the, the biggest takeaway, if, if I had to drill down to just one thing for me in this episode, it was Justin's repeated suggestion. He, he kept on reminding us that we need to sometimes go beyond the normal routine. We sometimes have to push outside of our comfort zone, whether that's by trying completely new tactics, going to new places, or maybe just pushing in further or pushing harder for a buck than we ever thought we would. And that, my friends, I think is a really good piece of advice. So I'd say we should just get right into it. But before that, I do just have to go through some real quick little house cleaning here. Uh, Longtime listeners out there, you've probably noticed that we've had a few more ads running than we did three or four or five years ago. And sometimes those ads aren't even hunting related. And I know ads can be a drag sometimes. I feel that way too. Um, It is just a thing that... You got to do it helps us keep this free show going 
They help support other big projects that we put out there for free, like the Back 40 video series and all that. And they, they keep me here and able to be talking to you. So I just wanted to, to recognize that, hey, I know that's a little different. I know that maybe you roll your eyes on occasion when you hear those. I thank you for your patience. I thank you for your support. And then I'm just going to come right back at you, though, speaking of ads, and give you one more right now, a shameless plug. If you're looking for a last-minute or belated Father's Day gift idea, i got to give you a quick suggestion. Maybe your dad or another father in your life would like my book, That Wild Country, an epic journey through the past, present, and future of America's public lands. Uh, As you know probably from hearing the podcast, this book covers the history of how we got all these big wild public places and a whole series of, of wild adventures exploring them. You can get it wherever books are available. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, whatever. I appreciate it. I think your dad would like it. And now, whew, with all that out of the way, I promise it is time to get to the show. All right, with me now on the line is Justin Hollinsworth. Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we can have this chat. It's, uh, I don't know. I don't know how it is for you, but I'm thinking about deer all year long. Probably every day there's something I'm thinking about, but I have a little bit of an ebb and flow where my crazy meter can sometimes go from like 80 to 150. And that crazy meter goes exponentially higher as we get into the summer. So once June hits and you start seeing a velvet buck or two, I get a little weird. And that's where I'm at right now. And so talking with somebody like, like you is the perfect way to scratch that itch. Um, so that's my long-winded way of saying I'm excited about this. No, I'm glad to be on. I've been listening to your podcast for a while now. And I love them. Ah, glad to hear that. I appreciate it. Um, well, if you've listened to past episodes, then you know I usually like to kick these off with just a little bit of an intro from you. Uh, if people don't know who you are, what you do, can you just give us the quick 101 on, uh, on your background and what you're up to? Yeah, so um, I uh, grown up in Ohio, uh, live in Central Ohio, and have for the last uh, twenty years. And um, I uh, I work as a construction project manager, but um, I've been involved with um, um, Lone Wolf and Lone Wolf Custom Gear for almost twenty years now. Um, Matter of fact, I have not shot a Pope and Young whitetail out of anything um, other than a DeQuisto design stand. And um, and currently um, working with them on the Lone Wolf custom gear side of things. But I'm also the co-producer along with Byron Horton, who's the main producer, and he Cisco, another co-producer for uh, the Whitetail Addiction Show. So that's uh, – what I'm doing these days, but um, um, more importantly, I'm just a, another average guy out there that is absolutely addicted to whitetails and love everything about them. That's the kind of person I like to talk to. Um, it's funny. I uh, I know a lot of really good hunters down in Ohio, and mm-hmm. I it was very strange. I was watching, I can't remember if I was watching one of your videos or if I was listening to a conversation you were having uh, with someone on a podcast or something, but it, it struck with me that there's another friend of mine from down in Ohio. He's more towards Cincinnati that mm-hmm. 
literally sounds exactly like you. The two of you have the exact same voice, the exact same pauses in your voice. Um, you could flip you and my buddy Mike out and it's like I'm talking to the same guy and you're both absolute killers. So it's, it's a weird Ohio voice thing that's going on right now, but it, it uh, I had to mention it because it just kind of blew my mind when I realized it. Um, you not happen to be related to a great deer hunter down in Cincinnati, do you? <laughs> no, no, but you know, somebody else has said the same thing to me one other time. So I, I have to look this guy up because I don't know this guy. So I'll, uh, I'll shoot you his name afterwards. I don't know. Maybe it's an Ohio accent or something that I've never noticed before that all of a sudden is starting to stand out to me. But, uh, but yeah, it's, there's no shortage of good deer hunters down that state. You guys are, you guys are fortunate to, not only be good hunters, but also have some great hunting. If you, uh, you've hunted in a lot of other states, you've, I know mm-hmm. Iowa, you've been all over the place, but mm-hmm. how does your home state rank? Is that, is that your favorite? Or do you still like going out to places like Iowa? Is that still special? I love Ohio. Um, you know, and I have a lot of time to prepare here and, and we have some, some great deer. There's no doubt. Um, I don't know something about Iowa. It's just like the cream of the crop, though. Um, it's hands down my favorite. But uh, you know, Illinois is great. I've Kansas is is great. Um, there's a lot of really good states. But if I had to, I guess, I mean, Iowa's my number one, and I would say uh, probably I would probably rank Ohio four but maybe that's just because I live here, but I have a lot of time to prepare, you know, to prepare here. And, um, I think that's why I consistently have success is just because of my preparation and everything that I do where I tend to, a lot of times I leave Ohio, um, and hunt the rut in other States because, um, a lot of the deer that I'm after just, who knows? Who knows where they are? Right. Half the time. It's harder to keep track of them from a long distance, that's for sure. Um, so I've got a weird way I want to kick this off. Um, and you can answer this however you, however it kind of rings true to you. But why would you say you're a deer hunter? Is it, uh, you, I guess you could answer that as far as how, what led you to being a hunter or why you love it so much, or I don't know. I guess I shouldn't answer the question for you. I should let you answer. Why are you a deer hunter, Justin? Well, I think for me, it you know, it started when I was a kid and my, my grandfather who would, who was always talking about deer hunting. And, and I remember a lot of those conversations and he, and he talked a lot about a guy by the name of Roger Rothar. And Roger and I grew up in North Central uh, Ohio, so Roger was not that far. And I remember my grandfather always talking about the sky and everything. And and I remember just I think just being around my my grandfather so much and he just built up the whitetails, you know, so much in my head. So when I first the first time that I ever went and hunted. Um, I went out and my, my grandfather had shot a doe like right in front of me and, um, man, I'm telling you, I was just hooked from that day forward is all I could think about. 
Um, I think I probably told most of the kids at my school that I actually shot that deer, which I did not. (laughs) (laughs) And, and it was just after that, I mean, I just, I was just fascinated with the whitetails. I mean, I did like science fair projects on whitetail deer movement. That's awesome. You know, like I'd be sitting in a social studies class and I'd have North American whitetail in that, in that book instead of uh, actually yeah. paying attention and doing the things I probably should have been doing. Yeah. Um, but I just got, I, I just got bit with the bug and I don't know, the whitetail, the whitetail is just a, you, you cannot, you cannot tell me that there's more magnificent of an animal than a whitetail. I just have a hard time believing that. <laughs> yeah. I'm right there with you. There's something about them. It's, uh, it's hard to shake it once you get the bug. I, uh, it's funny. You said the magazines and social study class that is yeah. literally, uh, I may have read my deer hunt magazines in all my classes, but for whatever reason, I remember specifically getting in trouble in a social studies class. I was sitting in the back row of my high school. It would have been my junior year, I think. And my buddy, uh, Josh Hilliard, who people know as Furter, was sitting next to me, and I was trying to get him into deer hunting at that point. And I'm look, I'm showing him deer and deer hunting in North American whitetail magazines in the back of class, and we got called out and yelled at, and that one sticks with me. So that uh, some about social I think studies. we've all done that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, so it sounds like that obsession in high school is definitely still going for you now. I, I heard you say that you try to do at least one thing whitetail related every day. Um, Would you say, is is that accurate still? And if so, what did you do today or what do you plan on doing the next day or two? Well, um, yesterday I was setting trail cameras um, for a big portion of the day. And, um, you know, today I was, I was actually coming back from a um, job site and, um, I noticed a, a piece of ground, um, that just looked really, really good, really, you know, had the good cover, you know, what, you know, what a big white tail would. And I literally pulled over at the next gas station and started, you know, buzzing through Onyx, um, <laughs> trying to figure out who owned that piece. And, and then did the, um, what we all like to do is say, okay, there's that guy. So now I'm going to look him up on Facebook and I'm going to start <laughs> doing, you know, and just trying uh-huh. to, we have any mutual friends and like trying to, that's, that was what I was doing today. Has that ever worked for you? Have you ever been able to have a random drive by and connect the dots and, and get permission or something? For sure. Any, any, sure. any trick to it that you think helped that work out or is it just getting lucky? Um, a, a mutual friend is tremendous. I mean, that can be, um, in itself, if you have that, you know, that foot in the door that can go a long ways. And actually last year I ended up, I, I got a piece that was, was just that, um, we had a mutual friend and, and by the time I tracked them all down and I, I had called her and I said, Hey, I know this is completely random. But, um, and I mentioned the guy's name. She's like, oh yeah, how do you know him? I'm like, well, I don't, but, (laughs) and then it led to that. And then probably over the course of about three weeks or so, 
um, I finally ended up with uh, getting a permission slip. That's amazing. I feel like one of the biggest things there is just like there, there's there's some number of people that want to get more permission, and then there's a smaller number of people that are thinking about it a lot. And I think this is a really important subgroup of people in that they're thinking about constantly getting that access and then, you know, take it that next step further like you did. Like you saw something that looked good, you looked it up, you tried to, you know, drill down to other contacts and making it work. That seems to be something that is consistent among a lot of really good deer hunters is is obsession with access. Keeping on getting new permission, following up on leads. Um, I've been... I've had periods where I'm good at it, periods where I'm not as good at it, uh, but it seems like those guys and girls that are constantly thinking and adding to their to their list of spots, that that's never a bad thing, don't you think? I mean, you can never have too many good spots. Yeah, I, and because I mean, um, things just constantly change, and and you never want to get, you never want to be stuck into limiting, you know, yourself to just a couple couple pieces of property because maybe the caliber of deer that you're looking for is is not on those pieces that maybe you've been hunting for years and um i just want to make sure that you know going into each and every season i have the the caliber of buck that um i'm i'm looking for and it gets and that gets harder as i get older and more further into this um uh, because let's face it, I'm, I don't care if you're in Ohio or Iowa or wherever you're at, you know, uh, a 150 plus deer is just, they're hard, they're hard to find. And, yeah. um, and, um, uh, that, that, but that's the challenge and that's, you know, that's what I enjoy. I, I do like that uh, part of it. Yeah. So you're getting pickier and pickier. It sounds like, you know, every year, as many people do, they get higher and higher expectations or goals. And now you're trying to find buck of a certain caliber like that. When you're trying to find new places or when you're driving down the road and you see something and then you look at the map, what kind of criteria is it that you are looking for that makes you think, Ooh, that could be the kind of spot that has the type of buck I'm after now. Like, how do you find that exceptional property? Um, I think the biggest thing is cover. Um, you know, the nastier it looks, the more I'm attracted to it. Um, and I've had some experiences over the years and I think a lot of guys have gone through this. We go through, you know, I have, you know, some properties that, you know, I can, I can do a lot of things too. I can put food plots in I can do some, um, some hinge cutting, those types of things. Um, I've gotten access to pieces over the years where, I've went in and thought, man, this is a killer piece. And maybe I had it for a couple of years. I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm going to put all these food plots in it and everything else. And I actually made the, some of these, some of these farms, I, I heard them to be honest with you. And instead of, I took away too much cover and the, and some of the best pieces I think I've ever hunted are just nasty pieces. And I think that's where the older mature deer tend to like uh, because I I've gotten I've got access to a couple pretty good sized farms that have a lot of big open timber on them and they're two three hundred acre pieces and they're just not nearly as good as this ten acre piece that is just nasty. 
Yeah. Yeah, that seems to be, that seems to just, just draw them in. Now, here's something. My buddy Andy and I were talking about this the other day. Do you think that you find the big old nasty buck in that thick stuff because that big old nasty buck sought that out and wanted to find the thickest, nastiest stuff to stay alive? Or was that a buck that just happened to grow up there and because it was thick and nasty, he survived to become big and old? I think it could go both ways. Um, I think, but I also think too that, you know, you say, say you have this 20 acre piece and it's thick and nasty or whatever, and you go in there and you, you, you kill that target buck. Um, I, because it is so good and because the spot is so bulletproof, um, when it comes to, um, a deer being able to escape you, I think another deer just moves right in, uh, another mature deer, uh, a lot of times will to move right into one of those spots, but, I don't know. I've seen it both ways. Um, cause I've, I've grown deer on some places and then I've also had places where, um, I've killed a buck and another buck moved right in. Yeah. Um, it seems that that thick stuff like that is, is in my experience has always been a really good starting point. Like if you mm-hmm. find that, you know, you're in the general, you're in the ball game, but then something I've kind of gone back and forth with throughout my deer hunting journey has been figuring out what's the next step. Like what's like, how do you work with that chunk of bedding area or that swamp or that thicket or whatever it is? At times I always thought, leave it untouched. Don't go in there. Don't spook the deer. Don't blow them out. Hunt on the edges. And then other times I've started thinking, maybe I need to get more aggressive. Maybe I should be pushing in there. Maybe I should be, you know, I've kind of waffled and tried different things and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. And I heard you telling a story uh, recently, kind of similar to this, where you had gotten permission, I think, on a small property. It was a small, thick area. And you, at this time, I think it was earlier in your deer hunting um, career or journey or whatever, you you were afraid to go in there because you'd always kind of heard some of the things I did, which which was don't blow them out. Don't spook those deer. Um, yeah. But then your your friend, Andre DeQuisto, who a lot of us know from, from Lone Wolf and all the different things he's done, uh, he told you to go in there and, and walk it. Blow that deer right out of his bed if he had to. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that experience, that story and, and what you learned from that? Was it, was Andre right? Was that the right thing to do? Yeah, for sure. For sure. It was because in, in years past, I would have never done that because I would have, <clears throat> I would have just given that deer that and would have started on the edges and tried to catch that deer. Um, and not knowing that piece either. Um, that was the other tough part of it. So I re- I remember I'd, I'd got access to that piece and I knew there was two good, there was actually two good bucks on that piece. And how'd you know and that? I, I, so, you know, I, a lot of guys like to scout, a lot of guys like to scout in the, in the evenings in glass fields. I don't like to scout in the evenings cause I'm kind of an early bird. Plus I feel like I draw a lot of unwanted attention yeah. by, uh, my, you know, by a park truck with a set of binoculars hanging out the, the driver's <laughs> side. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I, I mean, I, I tend to go early, um, then late. 
I don't do, I don't glass as much as I used to, but, um, but I, I, I told him about it and he said, you just, you need to just get, you need to just go in there. Don't care. Just learn the piece. And when you jump that deer up, then you, you, you know, where in the general vicinity where he is, likes to be at this moment in time. And it was like August, I think. <clears throat> and I remember going in there and bumping that deer out of his bed and, and him escaping. And, 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 and I just, and I still had this whole thought in my head. I'm like, Oh my gosh, what did I just Oh do? shit. <laughs> yeah. And I remember just like still cringing over that. I was like, Oh, I don't know about that. But I had my way with that property at that point. And I was able just to do whatever I wanted and scout every bit of it, even though it was August and it was 90 degrees out and, you know, you're, you know, dealing with the ticks and the mosquitoes and everything else. But I knew how everything laid in there and I could see a lot of the old sign from, from the year before. And, and that just, that just played out, you know, perfect. I never caught up with that deer till, um, I actually killed that deer the first week of gun season with my bow. Um, we can, we can, uh, bow hunt during our gun season and I, I don't, I don't gun hunt. So, um, it took me a minute to catch back up to him, but there was a lot of things, you know, I had an, I had encounters with that deer prior to that, that I probably wouldn't ever had if I had ever done that. And when that deer moved, he, that deer left that farm for a little bit in November and when he showed back up, I, I set my truck and um, watched that deer for two evenings in a row. And I, I just didn't have the wind where I, I, where I, I wanted to be. And as soon as the wind switched on that third day, I went in there and killed him. Huh. Did he do – so he did the same kind of thing or did he, did he use the wind differently? Because this is something I'm always trying to do too is, is see historical movements – and then when the wind gets right for you, you go in there, but then the deer doesn't show up. And then I wonder to myself, well, did they not show up because I waited for the wind that worked for me? Um, what what was the scenario for you? It was kind of one of those, you know, one of those winds where you're you're splitting the hairs. And I've always, you know, Roger Rother wrote about that in his books, in his book Whitetail Magic years ago. And um, you know, it was hunting that edge wind, and um, and I, you know, I call it flirting with disaster is what I call it because you're on the edge of making it happen or not. And that was the wind that I had had. Yeah, there was a little more of on the, the first two nights that it came out, there was a little more of a Southeast to it. And the night that I, that I'd killed him, it was more, a little more of the South Southwest. So he still had it. I think he had that false sense yep. of security and and the confidence of moving uh, through that area. But I was just, uh, you know, I was just on that edge and just flirting with disaster, basically. And it and it worked. That's, that that taught me a lot right then. Yeah, on the wind perspective, you're saying. Yeah that that really like opened my eyes. Um, because I had heard that before, and then I, when I read that in Roger's book, um, it made sense. 
you know, and I'm like, you know, I, yeah, I get that. I was always just like bumping that deer out of that bed that time. I was always nervous about, I was always too nervous about getting busted. And I think that's the biggest problem. You know, sometimes you have to get uncomfortable. And I guess what I mean is you have to, you have to use some of those strategies and get out of your comfort little box that we all like to get in and stay in. And, and sometimes that, that just hurts you. Um, as far as trying to kill big deer, you have to try some new things. Yeah. But man, like you said, you are flirting with disaster and, and how many times do you do it where it is disaster? And it's not, you know, that's the tough thing is that it is, it's so hard to pull off. I constantly, I constantly find myself trying to do that same thing, but it's right. It's, it's easier said than done in most cases. Um, because there's, there's so many little things that can go wrong and you have to have everything go right to get that shot. I mean, you could pick the right wind. You could pick it so he feels comfortable coming out. You could pick it so that you don't think he's going to pass where your wind is blowing. And you could still be in a position where he'll come through and think he's safe, but he won't realize you're there within shooting range. But then one doe could do the wrong thing, and she slips there and blows everything out. I mean, how do you – like, what are some of the things you do to try to minimize that risk uh, I don't know. I'm constant. It's, it's a constant struggle for me. Like, are there any tricks you've found? Are there any things that you're thinking about, like to take it to the next step to actually make that flirting with disaster work more times than not? I think it's more of just one big thing is structure and terrain. Um, those things will, you know, and, and maybe you have some fallen trees or maybe there's a, a big, you know, a, drop off from a, a creek or, or maybe it's a pond or what, you know, so those things help a lot when, when you can use some stuff like that. Um, and, and then other times it's, um, cross your fingers and hope this works because sometimes it's a one shot deal. And, uh, there's been times where I've had deer come in where the gig is up, but my arrows already coming. Yeah. <laughs> It's he's he's gonna bust you right when you shoot him. Yep, yep. I mean, just being right on that edge of of you know blowing it all up. I I killed a I killed a deer. Um, it's been I don't know probably seven eight years ago. It's actually on one of our Whitetail Addictions episodes, and um, he's a big wide ten. And he had some split brows and a little like drop or something at the at one of his bases, that deer, I knew of that deer for a couple of years. And, and the night that I decided, okay, this is it. I'm going in to kill this deer tonight. Um, I had, can I force I you to, win. can I put a timeout on you? Yeah. All right. I'm a jerk for doing this, but you got to tell me before you keep going, you got to tell me how you knew it was the night to go kill him. Okay. Well, I was watching some cameras and, and I, I just kind of, I stayed out and that's the other thing. You just, you have to be patient. You know, you, you, you only have just a couple shots at, at, at these bucks sometimes. And, and I just kind of sat back and kind of let my cameras do the work. And then there was a lot of times too, like, 
I would just maybe glass from afar, see if the deer was coming out to a field or whatever. But he was, he, he was never actually had a food plot in there and he was never, he was never making it to that food plot till after dark. Well, I'd seen, I'd step back from an observation stand and I could see some big rubs that were coming out. And I had a general idea, just knowing the property about where the deer was. Well, I went in there and just poked around one day and there was a couple, there was a, a hedge apple tree in there and there was a pear tree. And that pear tree has never dropped any pears since that day. I don't know what the deal is on that, <laughs> that, on that tree, but it was loaded that year. And, and I just thought he's, he's staging up in here. He's hanging out before he makes it the, the rest of the way out. But what I'd noticed from the camera, like when he had a win that was not in his favor, he was showing up two, three hours after dark. When he had a win in his favor, he was making, making it in there and shooting and shooting light. And this was like October 8th or so, October 9th. And I just kind of hung out and just kind of waited for this to happen. And the deer had not showed up. He had a couple of days in a row where he showed up well after dark. And the wind was switching. I'm like, well, if the wind switches that direction, he might show up in there early. And I'm like, I, I just have to take a chance because he'll have that wind to his advantage. As long as it doesn't lay down too much in the evening to create that swirl because i swear once you get under five miles an hour it's like man you just don't know i mean you're really risking a lot yeah i slid in there hung my set and that that was the only deer i seen that whole entire evening and he came out and i probably watched that deer for 80 yards or so and i'm not kidding you he literally would walk five yards stop, listen, look around and just repeat. And he did that for 80 yards. Like he absolutely wore me out. <laughs> Pay attention here. Cause this is a hell of a good service. It's called the wellness company. Picture this. Okay. You wake up, you got a scratchy throat. You're all congested. You got a runny nose. You got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options. Like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So... On hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. And use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash MEATEATER. 
Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. How was... So you you, you mentioned that the wind had shifted to be in his favor. Can you use that as an example to talk about how you positioned your stand? Because you hung you hung a new set that day, it sounds like. So how did you how did you use the way you thought he would use the wind and the way you were going to use the wind to make it work? Like what was this paint that picture, I guess. So I had um so oh, where the apple and where the apple and pear tree, the apple tree was uh, there wasn't very many apples in there left on that. There was a ton of pears left. There was two big blowdowns, and I felt like he wouldn't come behind those blowdowns um, just because he would end up um, – he would lose too much of, of control of being able to scent check something for danger. So I got myself just on the one side of those where it was going to kind of force him to come up and around – but, you know, but just where it was almost like where those blowdowns were, my, my, my scent was going to go right down those blowdowns and he was just going to come right through the front. Now, obviously, that's what I played in my head and thought was going to work. It did work that way, but it doesn't always. Um, and, and it kind of forced him to come right around. And at one point, I, I, the deer almost acted like and maybe it was me being a little paranoid uh, from watching him that long, but he almost seemed like he caught a little bit of me. Um, but then he calmed back down and then, and then moved through. So that structure kind of, kind of helped uh, that deer kind of, it forced him through where I wanted him. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It's, it's one of those things, um, I'm always looking for that. And when you find something like if it's the blowdowns or if it's a, a river or a creek or a big drop off ditch or something like that, it's great. And then I just, it seems like for whatever reason with my luck, whenever I want to find something like that, I'm in like the most wide open flat terrain with nothing special. that's going to help me work it out and too many does or something like that. So yeah, that's uh, it's, it's always tricky, but that, that puzzle, I guess is what, uh, what makes it so interesting? Yeah, because you never know. I mean, and you have to, you have to try stuff, and you have to be, you know. Trust me, I've I've blown, I've blown some pretty good opportunities, or 
or, um, you know, have gotten, you know, busted before they ever, you know, made it to me to be able to get a shot. But, um, if you don't take any chances ever, you're, you're, you're taking a lot of opportunities, uh, away from yourself and filling tags. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like that's something that's kind of consistent with, with some of the guys that, uh, that you, that you hang out with. It seems like, I mean, for example, Andre DeQuisto, he's one of those people that a lot of us have listened to some of the things he said that mm-hmm. that sounded like super aggressive. You know, going there like like you like he told you that one day, like going there and blow him out of his bed, or you know the, the infamous bump and dump kind of tactic that I've heard him talk about. Um, I mean, has that has has that mindset? Is that some is that a mindset that he has helped you develop too, or 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 how do you or or Andre or any of those guys? How do you? How do you, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, Justin. I guess what I'm trying to say is how do you walk that line? How do you know when to get aggressive? How do you do it the right way? I don't know. What's your thoughts on that general issue? So I think um, I I never, I I don't get aggressive like right off the bat. You know, I let some things kind of happen. And if I can kill a deer, on an edge of a, a field or a food plot or whatever it may, may be, you know, I, I'll go the, the safer route. Um, but I also, I also get a little bit of, I know sometimes I only have two or three hunts and I got to, you know, I just know that a deer is going to figure me out. Um, I've, I've got down out of a tree before and stuck a trail camera right on a tree, uh, before in video mode, just to see, man, you know what? I wonder if these deer, you know, you see a big doe and she cuts your tracks and, and she, and she trails you like a, a, a coon dog right to the tree. I always wonder like at night after I leave, does this happen? And I've, I've stuck a camera on a tree before and, and have had deer that I was that I was hunting at the time, trail me to my tree. That's that's heartbreaking. (laughs) Yeah. So you're like, so I, I, you know, it's all situational. You have to follow your gut of when to get aggressive or when to set back and try to hunt those edges and, and let things happen that way. Um, I, the rut, you know, by the time I get to October 28th or so, I start getting antsy like a big old buck. Cause I'm like, Oh God, I don't have that deer down yet. Uh-huh. And I start getting a little, like, I know what's going to happen. He's going to, he's going to get up on his feet and he's going to start searching other properties. Somebody else is going to kill him. He's going to get get by a car. Um, so when I start getting in that time frame, um, a lot of times I'm just like, well, I'm just going to go for broke. You know, if I screw it up, I screw it up because he's going to leave the property and be all over the place anyways. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's either now or never. When's um, the last time? Oh, sorry, go ahead. So that, no, I was just, I was just going to say, so sometimes that's when, that's when that kind of triggers me to, to get much more aggressive and, um, and start trying to kill those deer more in their bedrooms. Yeah. So I was going to say, when's the last time 
you swung for the fences like that and it paid off? Um, actually this past year, uh, it's funny because, uh, myself and, uh, Andre and Cody and a few of us have talked about this before. I don't know where this was ever, wherever this was wrote and why this ever become a big, you know, hot topic, but of not hunting mornings in October. Yep. It was like, Oh, we can't do that. You know, it's like somebody said that and that was like, and I think there's some truth to that, but I also think that um, you can you can kill a good buck too in the mornings. And this past year, uh, the deer that I that I was hunting, and he got really he you know I sat back and all of a sudden I just I see this deer and he's getting super active in the morning, and it was like mid October. And so that's just from and, trail cameras you're seeing that. Yeah. Yep, just from trail cameras, and I see this deer, and he's just—he's getting super active in the morning. And I, and I typically would probably wait a little bit, but I'm like, you know what? That camera is—I mean, it's not lying to you. I mean, you, this deer is walking in broad daylight in the mornings, and and he was working some scrapes um, next to a little uh, food plot that I had, and um, yeah, and it was another one of those times. It was like this is this is when you got to be aggressive and and like come out of your your comfort zone and get in there and try to kill the deer and i went in there and i hunted the deer one time and killed him um so so those morning hunts in october like you said notoriously mm -hmm. taboo and and like you said it seems like sometimes for good reason because they can be tricky i've been really gun shy about october about those mornings too but it seems like if you if you've got the right situation and you do the right things, you can pull it off without spooking them on the way in or whatever. Can you, can you describe how you actually got in there and set up without blowing them out? Cause it's just so many times these mature bucks seem to come back. Now I know your cameras are telling you he wasn't coming back early, but how'd you get in there? Was it a hanging hunt in the morning? How'd you pull all that off? So I, it was a hanging hunt in the morning. Um, and I, I was actually set up in a big pine tree. And <clears throat> so my access in that place is, is really, really good. Actually, I jump, I jump a fence and walk with the horses in there. Oh, nice. And these, horse, these horses will typically like walk right with me in there. So it kind of, you know, kind of covers up everything that's going on. And I just walk with the horses all the way down and then I just jump the fence and it's literally from where the horses are to that tree is 30 yards, maybe. Wow. And I can slide right in and get set up. Um, and, you know, I only use a couple sticks because with those, you know, those pine trees, there's so many branches and, and, um, so I end up using a bunch of branches and stuff like that. So there's not a lot of that time and then just throw the stand in. So the access, you know, the access is so, so key in that spot and, and being able to, to get in there, um, in the morning. If that deer was doing that on another farm where I didn't have that kind of access, I, I don't know, you know, I might've thought different. I might've said, okay, well, let me see. 
I'll let things develop more for the evenings, but that moon phase, um, which I'm a pretty big believer in the moon in the moon phase of dictating a lot of deer when they when they move. I think weather trumps everything, but uh, you know, coming off of that full moon, um, on the backside of those full moons, seem like the mornings are just really good, and they're just real. The the deer are just really active, and that's exactly what was going on that morning and and i i do believe that's what had him on his feet um because prior to that probably five six days prior to that the we had a good rising moon and he and and he got real active for like two days um in the in the evenings and i was out of town on a work trip and i had a cell camera in there and it was taken and I'm, I'm getting these pictures and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm about to leave this work yes, trip. That's the downside of those cell cameras. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Drive you nuts. So I know. So, and you know, I just couldn't, you know, the fact that every, all the kids and the other thing too was it was one of the, it was one of the, the first good cold fronts of October and those first cold fronts of October, like that first one, oof. That's just mm-hmm. always killer. So you gotta you gotta elaborate on your moon on your moon stuff a little bit more. Do you feel do you pretty much follow the red moon moon guide uh, theory uh, verbatim, or do you have any kind of angles on it that make you particularly excited about certain days or times or anything like that? How do you use that? I you know I do believe in that whole. The, the, I do believe in the moon guide and all that. I, I do think there's a lot of truth in that. And Adam Hayes, it actually, he was turned, turned me on to it years ago when Whitetail Addictions was, you know, first starting off. And I remember, um, you know, that being brought up then. And um, I think you have about four days, four to five days prior to a full moon. That is just killer in the evenings. And then there's about a three day span. Um, when that full moon is going on, it just doesn't seem to be that great. And then you got about four or five, probably four days, um, roughly after that full moon. And it just seems like the evening or the, the mornings are just really, really good. And I like uh, when, it, when you're coming off the backside of that full moon, that's a, that's a great time to slip in and hunt a buck in a bed just because they're going to be getting back late and you have, you actually have a chance of getting in there and beating them in and, and, um, and killing them on the way back in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like, it seems, um, that, that approach right there with the moon is just another one of those sets of criteria that, points right back to what we were talking about earlier like when do you swing for the fences when do you not and you mentioned sometimes the trail camera data sometimes it's the moon or sometimes like you said earlier weather trumps all but best case scenario it's when all three combine right like when you see all those things all meshing and pointing towards oh wow tomorrow all these things line up that's at least for me when i get like the jitters i can't sleep the night before when i'm getting geared up that day i'm just like 
pumped. I'm already sweating. Like those are the nights. Like I know this, this is the killing night. This is the killing day. Whatever it is, um, those are my very favorite parts of the season when you have that anticipation. And I think a, a lot of things that you just said there too. It's that confidence. You're going into that hunt with that confidence. And I think when you're confident in your setup, in your scouting, I think that's just so, I don't know, you're, it's a mindset. And it just, it just puts you in the game. Um, because if you're sitting there and you're second-guessing your stu- yourself, then you, you probably should get down. <laughs> yeah, that's not a good place to be. That mindset you mentioned, that's that's an interesting thing. Um, I mean, you've had tremendous amount of consistent success. Uh, your buddies like Andre or Heath or Cody or, or Adam Hayes, all these guys are all consistently getting it done. Um, and in a lot of different places too. So it's not like you, you can't just say, oh, it's just because they hunt a 1,500-acre farm with huge bucks all the time you're getting it done different kinds of places in somewhat different kinds of ways i gotta believe mindset is one of the things that's probably consistent within you know a lot of you guys if you had to kind of describe some aspects of what that mindset is or what some of these consistent things are that that maybe you and your buddies all have in common or that you've learned from andre or anything like that what would you think those things are that kind of set those elite deer hunters apart from your average ho-hum? Um, I, I think it, it just having so much confidence in your scouting that you just truly believe in your head that when you go in, you don't, you, you never just sit to sit. Like when you go and you set, you truly believe that you're going to kill the deer that you're after that night. Um, I'm so I'm a busy guy um, with work and family and everything, and like I don't, you know, you know, I have a, a young son, and and I don't want to miss out on some of those things, you know, with my family and stuff like that, because I'm just going out to set to set. When I I when I go to set. I go to kill. And I think that's exactly the way that those guys think about it as well. They have done every bit of scouting that they can possibly think of doing and put a lot of different factors in their favor from the wind to the moon to a cold front or all those things that when they go in, I think all I think every one of those guys as you mentioned I think they they go in and I'm killing the steer tonight and that's it. So that's scouting. How do you how do you how do you scout the right way to get you to that point? How do you what what are some of the things that you're doing? And I know you've mentioned some of that already, but if you had to like describe how to scout in such a way to give you that bulletproof confidence, what are some of those very most important things? Cuz I think when people hear scouting your new hunter might think, oh, walk through the woods, and if I see a rub, cool, I'm going to hunt that. Uh, but then when I talk to some of those elite hunters, it's a different level. I'm kind of curious what that different level looks like for you. You know, uh, typically, 
if, well, if I'm speaking of here at home in Ohio, um, I put a lot of eggs in, in my bat in, in that basket of, of, of shooting a good buck in October or late season. I, I have not shot a lot of bucks in November here. I just haven't. I haven't had a lot of luck with it, and I tend to to leave and go out out of state. But I do so much in regards to learning the deer that I'm that I'm after. A lot of times, I know of these bucks for several years. The buck I killed this past year, I knew for three years. The deer that I killed in 2018, I knew of that buck for four years. So I had a lot of information and and. and it, I think like a lot of guys do these days, keeping very detailed trail camera records, paying close attention to dates. Um, I tend to see a lot of deer uh, do the same things on the same dates, on the same locations. Um, And I also look for that sign that was left from the year before and, and, as far as maybe it's big rubs or maybe it's that one scrape that got opened back up again. Um, and knowing that that deer had, had did that same thing the year before and, um, and knowing my farms um, to be able to manipulate that situation to use all those, all those scouting tools uh, uh, against that deer. Um, if that makes sense, I mean, it's kind of the way I do it. I use a lot of cameras. I think last year, I think I ran about 45 cameras last year. Wow. And how many on like a, I don't know if we're saying a per hundred acres or per 40 acres or something like that, like what kind of density of cameras in a small area do you run? Um, say it's a 50 acre farm. I might have, you know, maybe four. Okay. Maybe four or five, something like that. And some of those cameras though, I put out and, you know, some of them I put out like really early and I just, I don't, a lot of times they just soak and I never go in there and mess with them or anything just because of where maybe they're at, um, depending on the situation. Um, and then I will at the, you know, seasons over, I'll go in there and pull that SD card and then, um, and dig and dig through it and start building a folder for you know certain bucks and what they were doing and at certain times and stuff like that. Yeah, that's something that I've done a little bit of in trying to do more of too. But um, it brings up a good, a good question or something that I wonder a lot about, which is um, doing what you're describing there when you are targeting a specific buck and trying to learn that buck and like kind of build up that portfolio of information like you described. Something mm-hmm. like I've kind of fallen into a rut a little bit with my cameras where I know this, this is on properties that I know already. I know good places to get pictures. I kind of use them just to keep tabs on kind of inventory of are these bucks still around? There's there's safe spots to get to. I can easily come in and out. I'm not blowing things up. Um, but I have not used cameras as much to try to micro pattern a specific buck on a specific year. Um, like some guys do, some people will take their cameras and keep moving them every time they see a buck or every time they get new pictures, they, they kind of tighten the noose of the cameras. How do you go about with your placement? Are you doing kind of like the, the safe inventory or do you move them around to try to fine tune what that buck's doing? 
Um, what are you doing there? Um, typically, I typically I don't move them a lot. Typically, I'm getting what I want um, already unless I see a deer from afar and I have not gotten a picture of that deer or something like that. Then maybe, um, you know, maybe I might move a camera. But even then, a lot of times if I see a deer from afar, and uh, then my next move is slide over there and kill him. Um, instead of trying to go over there and, you know, um, booger up the spot by putting in a camera or something like that. Um, typically, yeah. Um, I, I, I do, I do make a lot of, I, I like mock scrapes. I think they work, uh, great. Um, and especially when, uh, you know, being able to, um, you get inventory or, um, you know, something along those lines. Um, I, what's been a real big tool for me for the last probably three years is I, I have one of the, I have an electric bike and that's been huge because I can literally fly around these, these farms and nothing ever knows I'm there because my feet hardly even hit the ground. I mean, there's a lot of times I won't even let my feet hit the ground because I'll just pull right up and grab a hold of a, you know, tree with my, with my gloves on and, and pull an SD car out and boom, I'm, 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 I'm taking off again. That's actually, that's helped me too. in re, in regards to being able to hunt stands multiple times, because before it was, you know, the first time in was the best time. And well now, um, I don't think those deer, they're not cutting my back trail anymore. Um, I've killed a couple bucks with the, with my bike at the base of my tree. Really? So it's funny. I was just thinking about this earlier today was kind of debating internally. Are the e-bikes worth it? Are they, is it just a fad? Is it, you know, is it, I don't know. Is it all it's cracked up to be? Uh, I've, I've bounced back and forth. I've certainly seen, or I understand the concept, the fact that you know, not having your boots hitting the ground is going to be a good thing. And it seems to me that, you know, rolling through on a bike is going to be less, uh, less concerning to a deer probably than seeing or hearing the footsteps of a person. Would you say that, you know, those are the things that are making it so useful and, and it kind of said, you kind of said this made a big difference, but you, you're bought in, huh? hundred percent. I, I can ride right by deer that are bedded on that bike. And one thing I've, I, I have noticed, it's funny. I can ride right by deer that are bedded on that bike. And as long as I don't stop or make up much eye contact, you know, <laughs> if I really jerk my head around, they don't seem to like that. And they get up. Or if I slow up or stop, I mean, they're going to get up and move. But I feel like there's a lot of times I can slide right by them. Um, they stay bedded. They, you know, maybe it's three or four does bedded on a fence row or something like that. And I can just go right by them where maybe in years past they would get up, take off and run into where the deer that I'm trying to kill is. And then, you know, he's not coming out then if, you know, you got stuff like that going on. Um, and the other thing is, is like getting in and out of those tree stand, like big part of it is, is how many times have you walked in in mid-October and it's a little warm out 
And by the time you get there, you've worked up a good little lather. That bike's like an air conditioning unit. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. It's, uh, I mean, it's tempting. Yeah, I, 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 I love mine. Mine's a huge, and the other part of it is too, um, you know, you have a, if you have a, a family and, you know, sometimes we're limited on time. Sometimes the things that might take us, say you're going to go check trail cameras that day or, or whatever it is, um, or maybe you're going to go over and just scout out something real quick. I can do it in half the time now and be home, um, spending my time more, more wisely. I've gotten done everything I wanted to in the whitetail woods, but now I'm back home, you know, spending time with my family. Yeah. It's all about efficiency. What do you, what do you think about impact, uh, from an e-bike compared to like an ATV or a UTV or driving up with your truck and checking a camera? Do you feel like it's even less of an impact than something like that? I think driving up in a truck, I just don't think, I don't think that bothers them that much. I, the ATVs, I do think that does bother them. I've seen it. I've, I've been in bedding areas hunting with deer around me and hear like ATVs fire up on, say I have a lease or something like that with a, you know, a couple buddies or whatever. And they hear those ATVs. And I'm telling you, they they do not like them. They, they, I think they've had a lot of bad experiences with them, um, over the years and they just seem to be bothered by just to sit there and watch deer that are completely bedded and comfortable and to hear that ATV. Now they're on their feet yeah. and they're nervous. There definitely is a, a stronger noise association probably just cause it's such an aggressive sound. I'm sure they can, I'm not, They've got great ears no matter what. They'll hear a truck too. But yeah, it does. I Mm -hmm. do wonder about that. When you're rolling through on a bike, it just just feels stealthier and maybe that ends up being the case. Yeah, I just – and it is nice though when you can, you know – I know there's times where I might have some cameras out where I can pull right up with my truck and literally out the passenger or out the uh, driver's window and um, pull SD cards and – I don't think, I don't think that bothers them. I know tractors definitely don't bother them. I mean, my God, there's times where I'm putting food plots in and the deer are just pouring out in the other section of the food plot, you know, and, <laughs> um, they just don't seem bothered by those, the tractors at all. Yeah. Speaking of that, um, I, I've seen the same thing, but then I've always worried. So I'm, I'm fast forward now towards like harvest time. I had a situation where mm-hmm. I was chasing a buck last year during the fall, and uh, I can't remember exactly when it was, sometime in November, and I had a situation where the farmer had picked part of the field, but not all of it yet, and I went in there for, moved to this spot for the evening hunt, and just like two rows had been picked right in the edge of the field. So I was sitting there with the edge picked, but still standing on the interior, and everything was lined up good with wind. And I think I saw him the day before or something. And it felt good that, you know, he'd be visible and would come out here checking all these does that I thought would flood into that just picked stuff. And the farmers hadn't come. It was just about prime time. And I thought, all right, this, this is ideal. And then they showed up 
with like an hour and a half left or something like that. And they started picking again. And I, I've seen plenty of times where deer feel pretty comfortable with the, with the tractors and everything. But at the same time, I haven't seen like a mature buck step out and not be spooked. Once the tractor comes rolling by, you know, within 50 yards of him, he'll bump off into the woods again and then come back out later, something like that. So I decide Mm -hmm. because of my positioning, I couldn't shoot into the timber because there was a property line back there. And my only shot would be if he came into this field and I decided, you know what, with the tractors moving through here, uh, I just don't think I'll actually get a shot at him. I got to move to another spot where he won't be, you know, if he does come through, he won't be spooked by that tractor circling through over and over again. So I moved. And then I sat there that whole time thinking, well, maybe I should have stayed. Maybe I should have stayed because that's where all the does ended up being anyways. What have you, what have you found as far as that? Would you, would you set up on a field that's getting picked in November or would you try to get inside a little bit? Um, I would probably try to get inside if they're out there and during that time. And if they're out there, you know, driving the grain wagons and filling them up and running, the, running the combine and stuff like that, I, I would probably step back a little bit. Cause I would just, in my head, I, I, I would think that a mature deer would not want to be out there, um, during that, that time frame. Um, but then again, I've seen where, if, you know, it's November 8th or 9th, you know, and there's does out there. I've seen some, you know, I've seen some big bucks right out there with them too before. Um, I think it all has to do with the timing of the year of when that's, you know, when that's happening. Um, where, but then the following day after that's taken place and say so that they've, they've came in and pick the beans or corn or whatever, you can guarantee you that that field's going to be hot yeah. for a good little bit. Yeah, you can't beat that. Um, speaking of, of something like that, one of the things that you mentioned a little bit ago and I wanted to go back to ref, uh, kind of revolves around fresh hot intel or sign versus old sign or old intel and kind of working off of annual trends or patterns. So I know you, you've said you've seen deer do the same thing year after year to a degree. Um, at the same time, I know I've, I've heard you say and folks like Andre or Dan Infault or different people get really fired up about fresh hot sign. How do you think about the importance of those two things? You know, if you see a red hot fresh rub, big rub or something, is that more important to you than knowing that such and such buck came through here, you know, two weeks earlier, the last two years. Um, I don't know. I was kind of curious what you think about the two different types of sign and how that factors into your decision-making process. Um, I, I think, uh, I mean, I'm going to use every part of that, you know, I'm going to use the information that maybe I documented, through trail cameras over the years of, of, of having a deer maybe move through a certain area at the same time. But, uh, you know, I've always been like, I've always been interested in sign and big rubs. I mean, that's always had me super excited. And, you know, and I, I remember like years ago, always, you know, in scouting with my, my grandfather years ago, you know, if you can stick four fingers in there, you know, um, that's, that's typically a good buck and, you know, the, the length of the track and, 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 uh, you know, 
and the way maybe a, a certain deer's track is is shaped, maybe he's got a, you know, maybe there's a little thing there to identify that deer from years past or whatever. But um, I love fresh sign. I, I mean, the if it's red hot, uh, fresh. I mean, there's nothing better. I think a lot of times guys hunt. I think a lot of guys hunt sign that's just too old, like you know, that's a week or too old. Um, where I tend to, yeah, I, I look at it and and try to soak it in. But um, I, if, if 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 I'm looking for big rubs, I, you know, I want sap coming out of you know, I want some, I want the sap coming out of that thing and fresh, you know, and the the fresh tracks or you know the scrapes that had just been hit or. Um, but I, you know, but then again, I sometimes I'll set back a little bit and watch that sign and maybe see if I can see that deer and then make my move. Um, I do a lot of observation sets. Um, and if I see a deer do something, I, I, I typically don't like to let him do it again without killing him. Um, I, I like to just go right in. Okay. So this is another one of those things that I'm always finagling with myself is what you just described. You see a buck do something once and it's okay. Do you wait to see if it's a trend or do you go in there right away? It sounds like you go in there right away. Um, when you Tell me about mm-hmm. how you set up. Do you set up as if he's going to do the exact same thing or do you set up with some kind of knowledge? Okay, I know he came from there. But now I think because the wind's a tiny bit different or because I think something else, I, I just walk me through how you choose to set up on that next day after the observation. Because that's, that's a really important move when you make that, that swing for the fence move. Um, yeah, I always, always, the wind is always the biggest factor in it all. Whatever the wind's doing, if it's the same thing, as it was the day before, which is preferably what you really want, because then you know he felt comfortable enough to move then, then then that determines a lot of how, you know, how I move in. And I still I still go with that flirting with disaster um, nine times out of ten, because I just seem to I see a lot more big deer on their feet by using a wind that you know, has something to their advantage, um, and just try to get off to the, you know, one side of that. Um, and, and if it's not the same, then I might say, okay, I think he's gonna, you know, I play it out of my head and I think, okay, maybe he's going to, you know, hook around this end, um, of this ridge or this, you know, this field edge or whatever it might be. And just try to think, I try to anticipate his movement, um, basically off of just, if I was him, what I would do. Pay attention here. Cause this is a hell of a good service. It's called the wellness company. Picture this. Okay. You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested. You got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. 
wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Do you, do you hear something I'm curious about? Do you feel like the wind direction influences not just the way they're going to travel, but also where they choose to bed. Because when, when I'm thinking through that scenario, you just laid out there. The first thing I thought was, okay, just like you said, if it's the same wind the next day, then I'm going to go in there kind of thinking he'll do something similar because the wind's the same. If the wind's different again, I would think, okay, it's different wind. So I'm going to make some assumptions. He's going to adjust a little bit, but I can still take something from the observation yesterday, which maybe could be, okay, I know where he came from. So let's say it's an evening hunt and I'll make, I, I can then assume, okay, he's probably bedded somewhere over there. That's the, the clue I'm going to take away from the observation yesterday. But if it's a different wind, do I need to worry that maybe he bedded somewhere completely different because it was of a, a different wind direction? How do you feel about oh, wind impacting sure. that? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I, I've seen them bed all the way. Say you have a field and there's two different woodlots. I've seen them bed, you know, uh, in one woodlot one day based off the wind. And then the next day, everything switches and they're bedding in, a complete, in the, in the woodlot across from the field. Um, I definitely, I, I definitely think that is a huge factor. And I, you know, I think bucks have, Typically, I think they have two or three different bedding areas, um, you know, based upon what the what the wind and the terrain is doing. And, um, you know, I think they're, you know, and you get into stuff 
you know, you get into some stuff with some hills and some and some valleys and stuff like that, and they're gonna they're gonna use those those thermals to their advantage um, in, in a in a big way too. And um, uh, I, I'm yeah, I I totally agree with you, and I think that they have several different bedding areas typically. No, I don't think one buck has just one bed. Yeah, one bed. I just don't think that's possible. Yeah. Now, have you ever nailed down a buck so well that you could predict? All right, if I've got a south or west, he's probably going to be bedded in this little area. If I've got a north or a east, he's probably bedded in this area or anything like that. Have you ever been able to nail it that consistently that you could predict which general bedding area he's using based off a of wind direction or anything? I wouldn't say I can completely. Um, because every, it seems like every time I think I have it completely figured out, then I get, uh, (laughs) you know, the master, uh, makes me look like a fool. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, but I, yeah, I think I've, I've come close to that, but I can't say that I've ever had it so narrowed down that, um, um, that it was just a done deal yeah. sort of thing. But you kind of have to work as if you do, right? Like this is one of the things I was thinking to myself mm-hmm. about last year. I started going into hunts with this idea that sometimes you make assumptions. Like you have these clues, like you've you've watched this buck and you've seen. And so you, you go into a hunt and you assume, okay, I think because I've got a certain wind direction, he's probably bedded over here. Or you saw him moving last night and he went into this food source or something. So you have these different clues and you're assuming that something's going to happen. I used to go into my hunts assuming something would happen or thinking something would happen. But then I'd keep on trying to prepare for contingencies. So I'm like, oh, I think he might come out into this food source, but he might go here instead. But he might go here. So then sometimes I'd find myself picking a tree that kind of is in the middle of it. So, okay, maybe he could come here, maybe he come here, maybe come here. But then last year, I think it was, I started saying, well, if you do that, then you're never in the perfect place for the one thing. And so if he does come through and he doesn't do the one perfect thing, you're screwed. Um, so I started operating under this, uh, another idea where I was, I would instead go into hunt and I'm thinking through these clues and I'm making assumptions, but then I'm going to eventually pick what I think is the very most likely thing, like my plan A, and then I'm going to set up perfectly for plan A and assume that's the truth. So I'm going to say, okay, it's a south wind. I'm going to assume he's bedded in this area. So now I'm going to do everything perfect for that scenario. I'm going to make sure that there's no way my wind blows in there. I'm going to make sure there's no way that something happens. I'm going to set up in the perfect tree for this scenario um, rather than just being in like a general zone because I think, well, this, this, this. And I, I can't remember where it was that I heard you say this, but you said something very similar. You said that there was a shift for you when you went from hunting the area to hunting the tree. Is that, mm-hmm. do you think through things kind of similar to, to what I was just describing there? Or how do you for sure. do that? For oh, I for sure. I that was a big when I first started like really getting after like I, and I set out and I was like, man, I want to I want to kill a Pope and Young buck. You know, that's a gross Pope and Young deer. That's really what I want to do. And I I had a climber, and you know, man, you're so limited with those climbers. And I felt like a lot of times. I was just off the mark because 
I was forced to hunt a tree that was more like a telephone pole than where I truly needed to be. And then once I, I switched over and got introduced to, you know, the, uh, climbing sticks and hang on and stuff like that, that changed everything for me as far as being able to, um, not just see the deer that I was after, but to be in the tree and, and get a shot opportunity at a good buck that, that changed a lot of things for me as far as my success rate, um, going, going up from there. And I think a lot of times we, we search for these perfect situations and, you know, where you're not giving up anything at all. Um, you, and you just have to, you just have to learn to kind of live with that part of it. Like, man, I gotta, I gotta give some stuff up here. Cause it's just, I mean, it's where I need to be, but you know, um, they're going to have, you know, these, you know, this, these deer, the, I mean, they're going to have some advantage, um, to that. Um, and that just made, when I started hunting the tree is when, you know, when my success went, went way up. I think a lot of people just fall in a rut of, of, uh, you know, there's so many people out there just, you know, they have their ladder stands and they get out there every single year and kind of hunt the same spots. And, and a lot of guys do, you know, they do well with that. But, um, but I also see a lot of those guys, you know, kill a good buck every three or four years. And I, I just, I work way too hard at this to kill one, you know, that far and few in between I, you know, I, I want to kill a good buck every year, if not two. Yeah. Do you think that you're, are you picking the tree in, in most scenarios for you is, is picking the killing tree happening in March or is it happening on October 16th? Um, both. I think that's, I, I think it's both. I, I think a lot, I, there's times, especially here where I'm, I'm scouting and, um, and I know a lot of my farms pretty well, unless it's a new piece of ground or something like that. Then, um, if it's a new piece of ground, I won't hang a stand on it at all because I have to hunt it to be able to figure that part of it out. <laughs> and sometimes it might take me a little bit to figure that out. I, I feel like you need a, sometimes a couple of years to really like dial that in and say, okay, like I really, really know, um, what's going on. But if, if it's a farm, I've been hunting for a while and I know it based off of the deer movement I've seen in the past and so on and so forth. And also maybe, maybe there's some crop rotation that year where maybe in uh, a year before that or something, I notice um, a certain area was really, yeah, I'll go in there and hang a stand and, and, and leave it. Um, I have quite a few stands that I leave in my farms, but, um, but then again, I also read that sign and uh, as season goes on and, and pay attention to my cameras and, and, and make a move when I need to. I mean, when I, when I go out of state, um, I, I typically never leave any stands hanging anywhere on any farms I hunt out of state. I mean, it's a scout midday, it's a hang it, I hunt it that evening, 
I leave all my stuff, including my bow and everything in the tree. And I come right back in, hunt it again the next morning. And either I'm in the spot and I stay put based on if the wind's still good for me. And if it's not, I just tear it back down and scout some more and just repeat, repeat, repeat until I kill a buck. Yeah. I've always, I've, I've thought, and I've sort of wished, but I can't quite make myself do it. But I've always thought it'd be pretty cool to just take a season and not hunt and instead just follow someone around, like follow you around, follow Andre around, follow Adam around, and get to just mm-hmm. kind of stand behind your shoulder when you go into a scenario like that and then have you talk out loud everything you're thinking about as you're walking through the woods in your scouting session and as you're you know, picking the tree and as you're sitting there in the tree that night and trying to deliberate about what to do the next day, that would be so fascinating. Um, I just can't give my, I can't uh, convince myself to give up my actual hunting. But if if I did that, if I somehow convinced you to allow me to walk with you in the woods and you're doing your scouting midday and you found the zone and now you're going to pick the tree, can you walk me through what would be going through your mind? as you are trying to like, and maybe there's a specific past scenario you can describe, or maybe you can imagine something, um, but kind of walk me through all the things that are going through your mind as you're trying to pick the killing spot, um, on that day on November 8th or whatever it is. So, um, I'm just kind of thinking back on a hunt from a few years ago in Iowa and I'd noticed I was hunting the back side of this farm and I was coming and I was I was coming out after a morning hunt and I noticed that there was some really good sign up along this timber edge and it had this whole hillside that was just just covered in just just the nastiest stuff that you could you can imagine and I remember coming out and I'm like man I need I need to set up somewhere in here because just based off the sign. And there was a couple big scrapes that I could tell that they they had just been hit. And and just the train features and everything, just the way it laid, it just felt right. You know, it's just sometimes you just got to, you, you know, go off of some gut feeling too sometimes. Yeah. And I, I don't know why I did this, um, but – and I didn't have a stand with me. I would have to went back up to the truck and get a stand and sticks and then come back and then hunt it that evening or whatever. I went and hunted a completely different farm that, that evening uh, because I had a stand already hung in there. So I went the lazy route. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we all do this at times. And I was out there, I'd been like, I was there for about four or five days and I I think I was getting kind of tired. And I went back after that evening hunt and I'm like, why didn't you go over there and hang that set? You saw the sign, all the sign was there. And I remember sitting there thinking, I'm like, you know what, if the wind, if that wind, if I look at this phone and that wind is coming out of the north for tomorrow morning's hunt. I got a feeling those bucks are going to cruise that down one side of that uh, of that whole hillside that's just nasty, and there's got to be a ton of does in there. And I pulled that phone out, I looked at it, and I thought, "That's it. That's that's what it's doing." 
And I went over there that morning in the dark and I hate doing hanging hunts in the dark. Um, because you just, you never know once you get up there, you're like, oh, this is great, but I can't shoot anywhere. Uh-huh. When that light comes um, up, it's like, oh boy, what are we going to have? <laughs> what's that? It broke up pretty good. I said, uh, when it starts getting light out, you're always kind of crossing your fingers. <laughs> yeah. Cause you just, you have no clue, um, what you're going to, you know, be dealing with. So. I go in there, hunt the stand. I see two shooters that morning. I mean, two good ones. And I was about 80 to 100 yards off the mark. And we all tend to do this a little bit. And you're like, ah, oh, man, you know, now I got to tear this whole thing down again and move it over there. But I just knew it. I had to do it. You know, I just had to do the work. Well, that's what I did. And I tore it down. Slid it about 80 to 100 yards over there because the one because one of the bucks came out of this ditch and then another one later on headed into that ditch. And I thought, well, I'm going to catch either one of the, you know, one of these two bucks and I'd shoot either one of them. And so I moved that set. I did the work and the that that evening it was just a downpour. And I couldn't even I couldn't even hunt it if I wanted to. So um, and I left everything in there. Like I left my bow and everything in the tree. I'm I'm pr- I'm pretty good about that. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I go back in the very next morning and and get and get in that tree. And it was raining pretty good even that morning when I got up and. I, I, I go out there and that deer, one of the, the deer that came out of the drainage the day before, he came back out of, out of the drainage and went up that hillside that morning. And I, I, I waited till he got up. I didn't want to call to him. I wanted something to block it because I, I hate I hate calling to a deer and they just turn around and just like, boom, they're right on you. You know, like they've already figured out exactly, you know, where that is. And they're, you know, they bust in a tree. I let him get up the hill a little ways. He got behind a, a cedar and I snort wheezed at him and I saw him stop and, and swing his head around. And I could just see, I, ju- I could just see his cage turn and he stood there for a second. I knew he was thinking about it. So I waited till he slowly turned his head back the, the opposite way again. And I hit him again um, and snort wheezed at him and he, he came right down um, and gave me like a 25 yard shot. And, and, and it was, you know, it was that, that scouting and doing the work and, and seeing that sign, thinking about what the wind was going to do for that following morning um, for two days in a row, it came out the North and blew straight down and those bucks did, I mean, they just cruised that, that downwards side of that bedding area, area and it just, it just played out perfect. So I've got two follow-up questions on that. One, mm-hmm. the day before when you're sitting there hunting and you saw the two bucks do that move 80 yards away, 
what time did you get down to make your move? This is something I always debate internally too. I'm always wondering, you know, what is the exact best window that is the, should you just go right away or should you wait till you think the slowest part of the day will be and make your move? Uh, when do you, if you have like a midday hang and hunt move that you're going to make, when's that window you like to do it? I, I tend to be a little more, I kind of wait it out a little bit just to, you know, just to make sure kind of thing, but about 1030, um, you know, I'm, I'm sliding over there and, and that gives me a little bit of time to, to find the, you know, to scout a little bit more. Um, and you know, I already, I already saw what those deer were doing. So a lot of times I'll scout up so far and I use, I'll use my binoculars a fair amount to scout up ahead of me. So I'm not laying any, you know, any ground scent down up ahead of me where they might cross it. Maybe, you know, when I'm, you know, at night or whatever it might be, um, you know, I'll say, okay, I can, I can kind of see that trail over there. That's where they seem to want to be. I don't need to go any farther than this. I'm about 20 or 25 yards away. I mean, and I put the brakes on and, and, and get set up, but yeah, about probably 10, 30, 11 o'clock. And then that way I, I can have, have my, have my way with that spot. Yeah. That, that seems to be kind of where I've thought that sweet spot is because it's, it's late enough that there's not that super early morning movement, but you're not quite into that, you know, midday window where those big bucks sometimes get on their feet and start cruising again. Of course it can, it can vary. It could be anytime, but I kind of feel like that 10 to 11 windows, a little bit of a possible lull. So I, I like that too. Um, now, a little more on how you picked that specific tree though. So you moved in there after you saw them, you wanted to be downwind of that thick bedding area, but closer to that ditch where they came in and out. You're glassing as you work your way over there. How did you end up picking that specific tree to hang up? Um, I'm curious, were you paying attention to height or how high you could get into a tree? Did you look for a certain kind of tree? Um, Did you... I don't know, anything like that that was running through your mind? Or did you just want to be within shooting range of that ditch trail that was coming in and out and making sure the wind wouldn't blow there? I I wanted to be within, uh, you know, it all goes back to hunting the tree. And I wanted to be in the tree that's going to give me at least a, a shot opportunity at that that ditch over there. I felt like that ditch was kind of like the key to everything. Well, then... I get over there and, um, the, the next thing I was, I I don't, height does not make a difference to me at all. I mean, I see guys that will hunt super high and, and sometimes that the higher you get, the smaller your, that, that kill zone gets, um, that particular tree, I was probably, I don't know, probably 12 foot but I had the cover. Um, and that was the most important thing to me and, and will always be, I, you know, a lot of times, you know, in Kansas, we go out there and, 
um, we get in those cedar trees sometimes and my God, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm five, six foot off the ground and I'm like bulletproof and nothing ever busts me out of those things. Um, I think, and, and I knew too, cause that was kind of in the bottom down there. Like even being that low, even if the, the wind's coming back over, but being in the bottom in the morning, I knew when that rise happened in the morning, I knew everything was just going to get sucked straight up, um, as well. And, um, it made that, it made that spot like literally bulletproof. And it's funny because of knowing about that spot, I returned to that same farm three or four years later, whenever I drew another tag and I could not get a North wind. Oh, like literally the whole time I was there, I was like, Oh my God, I need, I want to get back in there. I know that spot's still good. And as soon as I did, I got in that same tree and killed another buck. Wow. <laughs> Pretty awesome. You find a spot like that. Yeah. It's just one of those spots that, and it's funny because uh, uh, my buddy that owns that farm, the, when I first killed that first buck there, he's like, where'd you shoot that buck at? And I told him, he's like, never even hunted over there before. And I'm like, really? I'm like, dude, I'm telling you that spot's like, I'm telling you that's, that's the spot. And, and then I come back out there a few years later and I kept telling him, I'm like, man, I want this wind to switch out of the North. I want to get back into that spot again. And he goes, you know, I still have never gone over there and hunted that section. And I'm like, I'm telling you, that spot is money. I said, if I can get back in that tree this week, and if I don't have one down already, I said, I'll kill, I'll kill a buck over there. And by 8 o'clock that morning, I texted him. I said, I said, I just smoked one. <laughs> and he calls me, and he says, did you really? I'm like, I'm telling you, this spot is it's just it's bulletproof. And I was on the phone with him. And, um, and, and, uh, he, he's like, man, I, I'm going to have to go over there and, and, uh, and set this evening and, and see if I can't get a crack at one. And, and so we got my deer out and we came and he came back and I, and jumped up in, in my stand and, um, and he almost killed another big one that evening. Jeez. Sometimes those spots are, uh, it kind of goes back to the annual trend thing a little bit. Like things happen for a reason. I always try mm -hmm. to, when I see something or I find like a hot spot like that, or I see a buck do something, I try to analyze, you know, why it happened. Because usually things don't, not always, but usually things don't happen by chance. There's usually a reason why a buck moved through a certain area. Um, so in that case, maybe it was that cover feature and the terrain features all coming together that, you know, year after year, bucks are going to use that area. Um, or when you see a one-off deer sighting at some other point, you think about like, you know, you, you describe like how he was using the wind. Think about why he moved in that way or why he did this. That, that seems to be another one of those, um, I don't know, things that I keep hearing from folks year after year having success. They're always asking why. They're always trying to kind of microanalyze observations or data to, to kind of, again, it's that idea of pick, pick the tree, not the zone. It's, you know, get the details right, not the, not the, the fuzzy big picture. Um, it just seems to it, be the difference. 
it's you know something you know something I picked up with with Andre a, a long time ago was the fact that I mean here's a guy that I mean my God the guy's killed like eighteen gross boon of crockets you know with his bow and his, his I mean his his living room is ridiculous you know it's like oh you know like it, the kind of kind of bucks and how many bucks uh, this guy has killed over the years. You know, the one thing I've always noticed about him is whenever he's talking to somebody like, you know, just working shows and stuff like that with him or just, you know, you know, us being around just other people and talking, I always see him asking a lot of people questions. <laughs> and it's funny to me that a guy as successful as, as he is, that he's asking anyone questions, but, you know, he's always trying to soak it in. I, I, I think it, it, that's what has been my observation with him at times. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. Uh, that's it's, it does seem to be one of those things, no matter how successful you are, those very best deer hunters are constantly still trying to learn. They're constantly still trying to find what that next thing is. What's that next edge they can find? Um, it's it's a lifelong process, I guess, right? Yeah, for sure. What do you think? No, I. What do you think your if you had to identify like the next area that you need to work on? Is there any kind of weakness, or is there any kind of thing you're really still curious about, or that you're still trying to nail down? Um, does anything jump to your mind when I? When I bring that up, yeah, I you know one thing that I would like to be a better rut hunter if that's possible. Like, I don't. I have a tough time with the rut. It's you know, like don't get me wrong. I I for sure I've shot some you know great bucks um, in November, but that's a really frustrating time for me. Just because um, the randomness. Yeah, I mean, just uh, of of deer, just and I, I'm uh, like, I'll get into the the routine just like everybody, you know. Like, I'm gonna hunt some downwind side of some bed, uh, some doe bedding areas, or maybe I might hunt a pinch here, or there, or whatever. Yeah. Um, it just I feel like the rut is just luck half the time. There's not a lot of skill. Um, that that goes along with with shooting you know those bucks terrain features are probably the biggest thing i think um but yeah i would like to definitely you know better my skills at you know learning how to uh to hunt the rut more efficiently than than what i do well that's probably a good thing there's a lot of guys probably that are in the reverse situation where the only time they can kill a good buck is during the rut and they need to try to figure out on the other sides. So it's, it's nice to be in the scenario where you can kill bucks pretty consistently in the tougher parts of the season than the other way. Um, one, one last couple questions. I've been talking your ear off here for a long time, <laughs> um, but I had That's all right. two like specific tactical questions related to what we were just talking about a second ago. Um, back to the, um, setting up on these hanging hunts. Mm -hmm. um, number one, 
when you're moving to midday to set up in a new spot and you found that perfect tree, do you do trimming or do you, are you worried about spooking things and you're not going to trim? Like that's something I'm always debating is, is how much, how many lanes do I open up? Do I do anything or do I just quietly get set up and hunt? Um, I guess just, just answer me that trimming. What's your perspective on that, on these middle of the day, hang and hunt type deals? I definitely trim. Um, I prefer not to, if I don't have to, that's my, you know, what I prefer. Um, sometimes, um, in those cases, if it looks like, say I, I'm going to have to trim a lot, then, then I, that's where I'm definitely going to try to stay low to minimize that. Cause the higher you get, the more trimming that you're going to end up getting into. Um, I, but yes, I, I've, I've got into some trees before where I, I, I knew I should have done some trimming and didn't, and it cost me a deer. Um, so I don't do that anymore if, if I need to open up something a, a little bit, but I don't, I always keep in perspective of my shots are 20 yards, you know, 20 or 25 yards and don't try to, um, <clears throat> I see guys get a little nutty with, with the trimming and, um, it ends up costing them a, a deer because, you know, they, they crack them beforehand because, um, you know, I, I grew up a big coon hunter, um, you know, and, and was way into that when I was a kid and uh, a good coon dog will drift a track from a distance. And so if, if a dog can do that, a deer definitely can do that as well. So, um, I want them to at least make it to that location before, um, before that, that scent that drifted in the direction froze them up. Yeah. So you don't want to be walking all over the place, opening up 15 different shooting lanes. No, no, maybe one, two. Yeah. There's uh there's the, the window types of trimmers like that. And then there's the, uh, the air, the runway strips. <laughs> Some guys like those too. Um, <laughs> yeah. I tend to be more along your lines. Um, okay. One more question on that line of thinking, which is you do a lot of the hanging hunting. You're running with a lot of folks that do that kind of stuff too. Uh, do you have a pro tip or two as far as the actual setup of sticks in your stand that have helped you do it more quietly or quicker or more efficiently? Are there any little systems you put in place over the years that have made you good at that um you know i've been i i ran the you know the lone wolf stand and sticks for years and ran the xop stand and sticks as well um you know all the Quisto design stands but now you know i'm running all the lone wolf custom gear stand and sticks it's to me it's the most thought out um system that is on the market. And I'm not just saying that because, you know, I'm affiliated with those guys, but I, I do believe it's, uh, it's the lightest. It's the, um, the way it stacks. Um, like this year I'm going to run, you know, the one, the Lone Wolf custom gear 1.0 with the mini sticks with the eighters. I think the whole thing is like 10 or 12 pounds. I mean, it's next to nothing. Um, the, you know, the, the lighter, the better, uh, something that, 
Um, actually, Andre had showed me instead of running the, the straps all around the stands like we used to do and all that kind of stuff, I put just a, a little bag on the bottom of my seat that hangs down and I throw all my all my straps in there. <laughs> so they're not just all over the place and wrap. I'm not doing that anymore. That's yeah. just a mess. Interesting. Now, what about your getting up in the tree process with the sticks? How do you how do you run that? Do you have them hanging off of you as you're climbing up in the tree, or do you pull them up on a rope? Uh, what's that look like for you? Um, I always put the stand on my back, and then first stick on, and then um, typically uh way I've always done it in the past is I just take the other three sticks or two sticks or however many sticks that I'm I'm going to run moving forward from that ground ground stick and um I just always hang them on a branch and I always have my stuff um you know I already have my um my st- my bag my bag is usually attached to my stand and once I get up I take you know, take a screw in, throw my bag on there and then pull my stand off and then hang it. And then my bow's already tied to the string that is, is, um, on my stand. And then that way I don't have to come, um, up and down the tree. Um, I try to minimize that as much as possible. Yeah. That seems to be the way to do it. All right, Justin, I am, uh, sufficiently, fired up for uh for some whitetails what i really want to do right now is go drive some fields and scout for bucks but i think i have to go in and feed my kids instead so um, <laughs> yeah. i guess that's comes back to the efficiency thing i gotta figure out a way to be able to do both but um i might what i might do is act like i'm still doing this podcast with you <laughs> <laughs> and maybe do some of that driving around and say, oh, it just ran over a little yeah, bit. That's a pretty good trick. That's <laughs> smart. <laughs> You've got to figure it out. Um, all right. So one and a half sort of questions, and then we're going to close this down really quick. Last question. I ask, I'm starting to ask more and more people this every time. If you had a billboard on the side of the highway that all these deer hunters are going to drive by every day, and you wanted to, to just leave one lasting message with all these guys and girls, what would you put on that billboard? Um, sometimes you have to get uncomfortable. I like it. That's a good take home from those, those stories. That's been a, a theme for sure. All right. That's a good billboard. Get uncomfortable. Get outside your comfort zone. Sometimes go for the fences. Last question, Justin. If people want mm-hmm. to see your episodes of Whitetail Addictions or follow along with anything that's going on from the show or Lone Wolf Custom Gear or anything like that, uh, where can they see your stuff and all that other stuff too? Um, you can go to uh, uh, the Lone Wolf Custom Gear YouTube page. That's where um, you'll find all the Whitetail Addictions episodes and um, yeah, and a lot of the old uh the old episodes that are on there as well, or go to www.lonewolfcustomgear.com. Um, that's our website. We, that's where all of our gear is. Um, or, you know, you can follow me on, um, Instagram, um, at, uh, I'm actually, it's not Justin Hollinsworth. It's Mason's dad, 1975. Nice. Get your priorities <laughs> um, straight. <laughs> yeah. 
and um, or Facebook or or whatever. Um, uh, that's where you'll you'll find all of our stuff at. Very cool. All right, Justin, I uh, I've enjoyed this. Thank you so much for taking so much time to uh, to talk bucks. I really appreciate you having me on. This was fun. I love it. Let's uh, let's stay in touch and exchange some pictures this fall with a couple dead bucks, huh? For sure. I love it. That's All the right. best part about this. I agree. All right. Well, uh, talk to you again soon, Justin. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. All right. Thanks for tuning in for this one. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, I'm raring to go. It's summer. Velvet bucks are out there in the fields. Fall is going to be here before we know it, my friends. So uh, get outside of your comfort zone. Start doing something different. Start working harder, working different. Uh, break the routine now and then prepare to do so again in the fall. Until next time, thank you again. I appreciate everything, your support, your time, your interest, your ratings, your reviews, your comments, your questions. Uh, It means the world. So until next time, thanks and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.